The word from the Lord this morning will be found in Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent and who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, and who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, Whoever does these things will never be shaken. And this is the word of the Lord. You know these first rows are okay to sit in as well? Like, like we all congregate in the back. I, I know I joked a time or two about throwing tomatoes. I promise it'll never actually happen. So these are safe zones up in the front as well. Well, I'm excited to continue our Becoming Like Jesus series this morning, and it's been my prayer throughout this entire series that these wouldn't be just things that we're talking about and ideas that we're discussing, but they would be things that truly get a hold of us and that they would transform us and that we would truly become like Jesus. And so if you're joining us just now and you've missed some of our last six weeks in this series, I'm going to encourage you to go back to our website and listen to those sermons because these are found foundational to what we're talking about as a church and what we believe the Lord has for us um, for our congregation. And so this morning we're talking about our next item in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit, talking about goodness. And so I got some audience participation that I want us to do this morning. I promise it won't be that bad. Um, but have any of you heard the oft-repeated saying that we're the sum of the five closest people to us? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Okay, we've heard like a couple of us have heard it, um, that you're the sum of the five closest people uh, around you. And this is uh, something that's been uh, more of a pithy saying that, that's an easy saying to come out with, or, or maybe you've heard it this way, uh, show me your friends and I'll show you my, your future. And maybe you've heard it that way. Well, these are, are sayings that are commonplace, but research actually backs these up uh, a lot. From the likelihood that you are to smoke, to even your uh, happiness, uh, the people around you play a profound impact on those things. In other words, the people around us do impact the kind of people that we are. And if we flip that on its head, we realize that the kind of people that we are actually impact the people around us as well. So if we are people who look like Jesus, if we're people that are becoming like Jesus more and more, then that's going to make a huge impact in the world around us. The type of people we are makes a huge difference in our circles of influence. And that's why we're talking about what we're talking about through this series of being people who are becoming like Jesus so that we can see our world impacted by the type of people who look like the Savior that we love to talk about. And this is something that has been the hallmark of Christianity through the ages. Church historian Alan Kreider notes that this very thing is what transformed the world. He says, it was not primarily what the Christians said that carried weight with outsiders. It was what they did and embodied that was both disconcerting and converting. 
It was their habitus, their, ref- their reflexes and ways of life that suggested that there was another way to perceive reality. That made the Christians interesting, challenging, and worth investigating. And this is ultimately the idea that we're exploring throughout this series. We're asking ourselves the questions, have we encountered the gospel? That's the first question that we ask ourselves. Have we encountered the gospel? Have we encountered the good news of Jesus? And if so, are we living lives that look like Jesus because of the gospel? Have we encountered the gospel and has the gospel encountered us? Has it changed who we are as a fundamental, at the fundamental level? And so we're going to explore that through the lens of goodness this morning. And we're looking at Psalm 15, which is a pretty short psalm, but uh, the sermon's probably not going to be too short. I'm sorry. Um, we got a lot to talk about this morning, even though we're only covering five verses. So as we get started, I want to take a poll just to kind of gauge where we're at. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and then put it down and then raise your hand again if you uh, are these. So raise your hand if you think that most people are generally good. I want you to raise your hand. Most people are generally good. Okay, we got some people that are saying that. Now put your hands down. And now I want you to raise your hand if you think that most people are generally bad. Okay. Okay. We're, we're about split in the room. So we got some work to do this morning. So this is fun. I was hoping it wasn't going to be one-sided or the other. And so I want to ask you now, and we're not going to answer it out. I'm not going to have you blurt it out, but what's your basis for the way that you answered? Why did you answer the way that you did? By what standard are you measuring that? Because if we measure that question according to scripture, then about half of us in the wrong are going to be, or half of us in the room are going to be wrong. Because this is what scripture tells us. In Romans 3, 11 through 12, it says, none is righteous. Uh-oh. Oh, man. Well, half of you guys are just heretics. You need to get out right now. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There's lots of grace here. It goes on to say, no one does good. Oh, man. People are generally good. Scripture says no one does good. Romans 3.23, we know this one, says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then finally, Jesus himself in Mark 10, verses 18, says, no one is good except God alone. So are people generally good or generally bad? Well, they're generally bad. It's not cynical to say that people aren't good. It's biblical for us to come to our viewpoint of the world from that. The standard for goodness is God. The standard for goodness is God. We don't get to define it on our own. We don't get to make up the definitions. The standard of goodness is who God is. And that means some, some tricky things for us because it, it makes us shift our mindset and our worldview quite a bit. Because it means that the drug dealer is just as condemned as the person who lies occasionally. Both of them are, are bad according to the way of God. Both are fallen and in need of the gospel. And that's the key thing that we're talking about this morning, the need for the gospel. Goodness is not something that is within us, it is outside of us. Goodness doesn't exist inside of us and we just have to peel back the layers like an onion and discover our good inner being. That, that's not what we have to do. We have to discover the gospel. We have to discover the good news of Jesus. And this understanding is key for us to understand the things of God, but also to understand how we are to live in the world around us. 
You and I need God to make us a new creation. That's our only hope to living good lives, to to living the type of life that God would have us to live, is to be made new through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. It's not something within us. We need the gospel. And so let's dive into our scripture this morning. And we're going to kind of take this uh, verse by verse this morning. And I want to start with Psalm 15, verse 1. This is David asking, he says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? See, too often, I think we ask ourselves the wrong questions. We can ask ourselves questions like, how bad is too bad? right? We'll sometimes ask that question, how bad is too bad? Or maybe we'll flip it on its head, how good is good enough, right? What's the the least amount that I can do to to still be good enough? Brooke and I joke a lot because uh, we used to do a lot of woodworking, and there would be times where things wouldn't always come out the way that you would want them to come out. And so we would joke often that it's good enough. And so you'll hear us Time and time again, we'll slap the table and say good enough because we made a video one time and that made it, made it into it. And now we laugh over and over again. But good enough shouldn't be our standard. It shouldn't be something that we're working towards. We should be working towards the life that God has for us. The questions, how good is good enough or how bad is too bad, they're questions that are built upon a false premise. They're, they're questions that are human-centric in nature. You and I need to remember that God is the standard of goodness. And that's ultimately what David is reminding us of in this psalm. This psalm is actually written in a very interesting way. It's kind of written like catechisms are written in this question and answer format. This first verse is the question, and then the following verses are the answers that David is giving. And one commentator notes that this format of this psalm is actually one that would have been used throughout ancient history. It would be one where people would come up to a pagan priest, they're trying to worship at a temple, and they would ask questions like this, who is able to come in? Who is able to worship here? And then the priest would give them a set of answers that would mainly be involving ritual purity. And what's interesting about the answers that David gives here is they're not centered around ritual ritual purity of going and jumping in the water seven times and cleansing yourself or dwelling outside the village for three days so that you can come and worship here. The requirements that David gives here in answering the question, they're centered around searching the conscience based on the standard of who God is. It's based on God's standard and not anything that we ultimately do to to make ourselves pure. And what's interesting about this psalm is it would have been used by the Israelites who were living outside of Jerusalem on their ways to Jerusalem multiple times throughout the year as they're coming to worship. And they would be using this psalm to kind of search themselves, to ask the question as they're coming to worship, as they're coming to the temple, asking God, who may enter into your holy city? Who may dwell with you? And they'd be going through the answers that are listed out here and searching their conscience to see if there was anything that they had been doing 
that's uh, contrary to the ways that God had set out. And if there were things that were contrary to the way that God had set out, they would need to make an atoning sacrifice for their sins upon arriving into the city. And once they've done that, then they could come into uh, the temple and worship freely But for them, it was also not something where they just go in, they make the atoning sacrifice, they worship for a little while, and then they go on to their back lot, they go back to their life and live however they want to live. That's not what happened for them. Instead, it was more of this memorial thing where they're coming to the city of God. They're questioning the standards that God has put in place. They're searching themselves based on that. And then they're making sacrifices, they're worshiping to God, and then they don't leave and go, okay, well, that was fun and all, now I'm going to go back to my old way of life. No, they put in place a memorial to remind themselves that this is the type of life that God would have for me, and it's a costly life. It requires me to make a sacrifice, to, to spend from, from my treasure and my bank, to make a sacrifice in order to be able to dwell with God. And so likewise, for us as Christians, we're not sacrificing goats. Say amen, hallelujah. We're not doing any of that this morning. That is not on the docket for our worship services. Sam, that will never be a part of it. That'll be like the big fat veto if that's ever there. So we're never doing that. It's not part of who we are as Christians. But our sin does need atonement. In the same way that the Israelites needed to make atonement for their sins, we need atonement for our sins. And that comes to us through Jesus himself. Our atoning sacrifice has been made by Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just give us a get-out-of-hell-free card. He doesn't just say, okay, good, your sins have been atoned for, now go live however you want to. That's not what he does for us. He, He says, you have been set free. You have been made new. Now live from that newness now. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Put off the old self and put on the new self. Walk in the newness of life that you have. And so as we're looking through all of these attributes that we're talking about that are found in the fruit of the Spirit, the answer at the end of the day is always the same for us. We encounter the gospel We experience the good news of salvation. We're washed by Jesus himself, and then we cultivate the type of life that Jesus would have us live. We're led by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit, and we keep in step with the Spirit. We abide in Christ, and by that, we're transformed more and more into the type of people that God would have us to be. But our only hope for living lives that are good or or lives according to the standard of God is to be transformed by the gospel itself. It's not something that's deep within us. And even then, even when we're talking about living towards the standard of God and not the standard of ourselves, we have to remember that goodness isn't the goal. Goodness isn't the goal. Righteous living isn't the goal. The goal is to love God with everything that we have. And in the same way, to love our neighbors. And goodness and right living is just one way that we do that. Ultimately, we're not trying to say, God, look at me. Look at all the great things that I'm doing. Aren't you so proud? Didn't I earn this salvation? That's not not at all what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, God, thank you so much. You have poured out your love and your grace and your mercy upon me. How can I not live for you? How can I not uh, mirror your goodness to the world around me? 
So with all that in mind, I want us to take these next verses that we're going to be looking at and kind of break down what goodness looks like. According to the standards of God, we're going to put this into three different categories for us in Psalm 15. We're going to look at goodness as righteousness in verse 2, goodness as human flourishing in verses 3 and 4, and then finally goodness as justice in verse 5. And so let's start by looking at goodness as righteousness. So this is uh, David's first answer when he's asking the question, who can dwell with God? He goes into verse 2 and he says, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. Blameless, righteous, truth. These are the things that David outlines first, and I think they're often the things that we think of when we're we're thinking about this idea of goodness. We think of uh, walking blamelessly, we think of walking righteously, we think of walking in the truth. Those are often what we think of when we talk about living good lives. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's what David lists first and foremost here, but we got to realize that this isn't all of goodness. It's not only about doing right. There's more that's comprised in goodness. And so while goodness isn't only about doing right and not sinning, it is a major category of it. And we've already established from Scripture that we're not the type of people that David's talking about here, right? We're not righteous. We're not good. We can't do that. Okay, you guys, you got, got it, right? We are not the type of people that David is describing here. So does that mean that we're hopeless? Okay, okay. No is the answer. Come on, guys. We can wake up. We can do this. I promise it won't be that bad. If not, I'm going to add five minutes onto the sermon every time, you know. So now everyone's like, amen, glory to God. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. It doesn't mean that we're hopeless. God is good. That's what we've sung about a lot this morning. And he doesn't leave us in our sins. He doesn't leave us to being dead in our trespasses. In fact, through Jesus, he has saved us in spite of our sin. In spite of all the bad that we've done, all the times that we haven't measured up to his standards, he has saved us in spite of our sin. Listen to what Paul writes in Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. He says this, and I love this. This is one of those things that I just wish we would all print out and just memorize because this is such goodness here. It's such a good reminder of the gospel. Paul says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. 
God knows our sorry state. He knows that we're dead in our trespasses. He knows that there is no good inside of us. He knows that we're not able to live life that is truly life on our own. And yet he steps into our story. He steps into our story through Jesus Christ shedding his blood upon the cross. By he himself becoming our atoning sacrifice. Taking on the wrath of God. He does all of this so that we can be made new. So that we can dwell with God as co-heirs with Christ. So that the new can come. And God imparts his spirit upon us. He enables us by his grace to to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. This whole process starts at the moment of salvation and is completed in the resurrection when we see Jesus face to face. We learn to walk more and more in this life. He saves us through the sacrifice of of Jesus. He transforms us through the sacrifice of Jesus. He glorifies us in the resurrection through the sacrifice of Jesus. I hope we're getting this. It all centers around Jesus. It's not centered around us. It's centered around who God is. And the only hope for us is a sustained encounter with God's grace. It's a sustained encounter of God's grace by fixing our eyes upon Jesus, by continually looking at him and allowing him to transform us more and more day by day into the type of people that look like him. You and I can't do good on our own. We can't do it on our own. But through the Spirit, we can be transformed into new people. We can be transformed into the type of people that do the good works of God, not by our own effort, not by our own skills, not by finding the inner good within us, but by by being transformed by the Spirit of God. I like how Christopher Wright says it. He says, goodness comes from the life of God within us. Goodness comes from the life of God within us. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul says it like this. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved by grace through faith. And by grace, we are enabled to walk in the good works that God has desired for us to walk in. It's all grace working itself in our lives. Salvation by grace. Doing the things that God would have us do, grace. Living a life that finds our meaning and our root in Him, grace. It's all God's grace working in us. We don't do it on our own. We don't make ourselves into the type of people that look like Jesus. It all happens by God's grace through the Spirit. I think oftentimes we think God like we think of Santa Claus. And just hang with me for a second because I think this will help us make sense of this. I think oftentimes we approach God like he's making a list and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. 
But our reality is not, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. That's not our reality. Our reality is that he knows that we haven't been good. He knows that we've sinned. He knows that there's no righteousness within us. And yet he has made a way for us through Jesus. He has made a way for us. We're not good for goodness sake. We can't be. There's no goodness within us. The goodness that we exert is post-salvation. It's bought by the blood of Jesus. Our only chance at goodness is to be made new by the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can live lives that are pleasing to God by his grace working in us. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't peel back the layers of the onion and finally find the goodness within us. We are transformed by the gospel of grace. And even as we start to live these lives that are pleasing to God. It's never, hey, look at me, God. Look at all the good that I'm doing. It's more of saying, hey, look at Jesus working in me. Look at what Jesus is doing. I was dead in my trespasses. There was no good inside me. But look at all that Jesus is doing. If he can do it in me, surely he can do it in you. If he has made me new, he can make you new as well. Let's go on to our next thought of goodness as human flourishing. And this one may be a little odd for us, but uh, this is what David is saying in verses 3 and 4. I mean, it's water. He's answering the question, who may dwell? And he says, the person whose tongue utters no slander who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. So grace-enabled goodness. And that's what we're going to talk about when we're talking about goodness from now on. We've already set the standard that goodness doesn't come from us. It all comes from grace. So grace-enabled and grace-powered goodness has just as much to do with how we act towards our neighbors as it does towards God. It has just as much to do with how we act towards our neighbors as it does to God. David says that those who are able to dwell with God are those who do no wrong to a neighbor. And I think oftentimes we, we make this a little thought. We just think of it as we're not supposed to sin against our neighbors. And that's certainly a, a portion of what David is talking about. But I think he's also talking about actively working towards their flourishing as well. You and I are embodied people. We live in real communities, and each day we have countless opportunities to work for the good of those around us. I think, um, you know, oftentimes we think that we have where we live, what we do, and then our spiritual lives in three separate boxes. We don't think of these things as interconnected at all, but we're not disembodied people where we have this life over here of where we live, this life here about what we do for our occupation, and this life over here, what we believe spiritually. We don't have three separate boxes. They're not segmented. We are fully embodied people. These things that we're talking about, like where we live, what we spend our money on, what we do for our occupation, while we often don't think of them as spiritual practices, they are spiritual practices. 
everything we do is spiritual. We don't have a spiritual side and then just the regular human side as well. Everything we do is interrelated and connected. Every decision that we make, every decision, even those ones that we often don't think of as spiritual, impacts our neighbors. It impacts the flourishing of our neighbors. And we have to realize that God desires to use where we live, what we do, what we spend money on for the sake of those around us. He desires for us to live lives that are fully integrated, to be people who contend for the highest good of those around us and seek the flourishing of our neighbors. And so that means making every decision through the lens of the gospel. Every decision, including those decisions that we often don't think of as spiritual. So why would someone who lived in the great land of Texas, overflowing with lack of state income taxes, move up to the great white north for the flourishing of the north country? To see the people encounter the goodness of God. I don't know what you do for your occupation. You could be a stay-at-home parent. You could be a school teacher. You could be a business person. Whatever those things are, you could be retired. We must see those through the lens of the gospel, allowing God to use all of those things, whatever our circle of influence is, for the sake of our neighbors, to allow them to see the gospel through who we are. Every decision we make is spiritual. Okay, let me move on. Um, David says a very interesting phrase in verse 4. And this is one where he, he says that the one who may dwell in the house of God is the one who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. And you may be coming to that and be like, how does that make sense in light of human flourishing? Pastor, you just said that we're to contend for human flourishing, and now you're telling me that we're supposed to despise the vile person. What, what does that mean? How does it make sense? Well, this is where our modern translations don't always help us as much as they can. So it's not um, that David is saying that we're supposed to despise these people and love the people that love God. That's not at all what David is trying to get at. Uh, Scholars note that the Hebrew underlying this verse is more about allegiances. It's not about hating one person and loving another. It's more about where we're putting our allegiances, meaning that we're to be people who make our beds with those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways. We're not to be double-minded, people that say we love God and do his works and live for him and then also just you know make ourselves combined with all the people that definitely don't do that right? That's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be fully embodied. We're supposed to be consistent in our gospel witness. And so that means that we need to realize that the outside world has agendas. I know that's shocking to all of us that the outside world would have agendas. And what they often do is they'll try and bait and switch us. And this happens on all sides. I'm not saying one side or the other, and I'm not thinking the opposite of the one that you believe in. All sides tend to do this to us. They bait and switch us. They'll say one thing of being like, you know, this is how Christians should act. These are the things that Christians should care for. Won't you come and join me in that? And you're like, yeah, that sounds good. That's, that's consistent with my lived gospel witness. That's something I can contend with. And then they yank it out from under you. And they're like, well, these are all the things that we really care about and love, so you better just step up and be with us and all that as well. we got to realize that, that people have an agenda. 
All sides have an agenda. They're trying to, to get things out of us that they want that aren't consistent with the things that God wants. And so I want us to kind of frame uh, this with some questions. And these are questions that we're not going to answer. We're not going to do participation. But I want you to just reflect on as you're thinking about allegiances and who you're making your bed with. Think of it like this. Is this person someone who actually loves Jesus? Is this person someone who actually loves Jesus? Or are they just trying to use my Christianity to accomplish something else? Do they love Jesus? Are they the type of person who has surrendered to Jesus fully? If so, then yeah, let's do some things together. Let's go after the things of God together. But if those things shift over time, I'm out. Because my allegiance is to God and God alone. And I want you to, to realize that we can't assume the answer to that question. We can't say, well, yeah, I know that to be true. Of course they love Jesus and they're, they're on the side. They care about the things that the Lord cares about. Some of them, sure, but not all of them. We must realize that we must make our decisions based on the things of God and nothing else. It's the whole reason that the cry of Christianity is Jesus is Lord. That's not just a theological statement. Jesus is Lord goes beyond being a theological statement. It's one of allegiance. Because by saying that, the early Christians, by saying that Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar is not Lord. Because that was the cry of the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. And the Christians say, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. He is the one who can lead me and guide me and show me the way to life that's truly life. He is Lord. When you and I declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we're also saying that nothing else is Lord. We need to be people who are fully embodied, making decisions based on that instead of decisions based off of other things. So the final thing I want to highlight here in this category is when David says the one who can dwell with God is the one who keeps an oath even when it hurts. Keeps an oath, oath even when it hurts. Our world today is very fickle. We make decisions quickly and we often only have our interests at heart. But this isn't the way that things should be. This isn't the way that we should live. We should be people whose words can be trusted. I like how Christopher Wright says it. He says, people who practice goodness are those who resist the temptation to take the easy way out of a tough situation. Even when it's difficult or dangerous to do the right thing, they do it anyway. They persevere in doing what they know to be right, no matter what the consequences. Goodness is also about letting our yes be yes and our no be no. It means loving those around us even when it's hard. It means keeping our commitments even when we'd rather do something else, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You've agreed to something. You're like, yeah, I'm going to help you do that. And you're like, ah, oh, but a baseball game. Or maybe it's not baseball for you. Maybe it's something else. Potatoes. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy, for bringing us full circle to my thing last week that I couldn't go beyond. If you missed last week, you got to listen to the sermon. I'm not giving you anything else. Letting our yes be yes, our no be no. It's about being people of integrity. That's what it's about. You guys remember when things used to be done with a handshake? That's, that's the type of thing that 
that David's getting at here. It's rooted in the goodness described here. And the way forward, the way forward for us isn't to lament that those days are gone. That's never how we should approach Scripture of saying, well, you know, Scripture is showing us that our world's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, well, Jesus, come quickly. That's never how we approach Scripture. Instead, we approach Scripture to say, God, things aren't the way that you've intended them to be. And you have put the gospel in the world, and it still has the power to transform the world around us. And so I'm going to live from that. I'm going to model it. I'm going to show people Jesus through it, and I'm going to watch it catch fire again. That's what living in goodness is about. It's about showing God to the world around All right, so, so far we've talked about uh, goodness as righteousness. We've talked about goodness as human, human flourishing. Let's now briefly talk about goodness as justice by looking at Psalm 15, 5. David says, those who may dwell with God are, are those who, who lend money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. And I know as soon as I said justice, about half of you like started getting real nervous about what I'm going to talk about this morning. But justice is something that is a wholly biblical idea. It's something that's rooted in who God is. And gospel-powered goodness is just, about, is just as much about justice as it is about living righteously. Living just lives are something that God has called us to do. God has always been a God of justice. He's always been a God who desires for all people to experience his grace, his mercy, and ultimately the promise of eternal hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time this morning, and you guys are saying amen, to do a full Old Testament survey. But if we were to do a full Old Testament survey and look at all the times that God rebukes Israel, and those are through the prophets, and he's rebuking Israel, one of the most common rebukes that you're going to see is because of how Israel has treated the poor and the foreigner. Time and time and time again, God rebukes the people of Israel because of how they're treating people that are other than them, some that they would see as the, the lesser in society. That's not how we are supposed to live our lives. A Christianity that only looks out for oneself or for those who are similar is one that misses the fullness of the gospel. We are to be people that fully live out this gospel message. I want to take us to, to Luke 4 for just a moment. And in Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus is in the synagogue and he's handed a scroll to read from. And this is something that is true of Jesus' ministry, his mission in the world, but it's also true about how we are to act in the world today. This is what Jesus quotes from in Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Upon reading that, he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. That's what Jesus says. This is the anointing that's upon Jesus. It's an anointing of justice to bring the gospel into all areas of life. Not just the spiritual areas, but all areas of life. 
David says the one who can dwell with God is the one who lends to the poor without interest. That's the very opposite of our society, right? Like, if you are poor in our society, 18.99% interest. If you are rich or have good credit, you can get interest at nothing, or 0.9%, or 1.9%, or whatever it is. Our society is opposite of what God desires here. And that's important for us to notice. I'm not making grand economic uh, theories or anything this morning, and everyone says amen to that, especially Sammy, because he would just have to correct me every time I got everything wrong. So uh, Sammy's a wonderful professor and would know way more about economics than I ever do. Um, I'm not making economic statements this morning. I'm just trying to point out that the way that things are done in the world don't always line up to the way that God prescribes us to do things. By saying that we are to lend to the poor without interest, God is saying that we are to not make a quick buck off the people where it'd be easy to make a quick buck on, but instead to to lift them up to show them favor, to show them grace, to show them his mercy by giving them something that ultimately reveals his goodness to them. God desires for the poor to be treated well. He desires for the poor to be treated well, but we often give little thought to how the poor are treated. Or worse yet, we treat them with contempt. But this should not be the case. We need to be people who live lives of goodness in every facet of who we are. Goodness properly cultivated transforms us to value the the values that God values. It transforms us to walk according to those values. And again, I'm going to quote Christopher Wright because I like the way he puts it. He says, living within the kingdom of God means living under God's reign, living with God as king. And that means a radical change of life and attitudes in order to reflect or imitate God, our heavenly father. This isn't just an Old Testament concept of showing justice and love and mercy to the poor. It's something that's repeated throughout the New Testament as well. Early in Paul's ministry, he has a meeting with leaders in the church, like Peter and James, heavy hitters within the church. And the final portion of that meeting is recorded for us in Galatians 2.10. And it says this, it says in that meeting, All they asked me, all the leaders of the church asked me, was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. We're talking about Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the heavy hitter of taking the gospel to a people that know nothing about the gospel and the ways of God. His ministry is also to lift up the poor. Though his focus was on spreading the gospel, it was also spent on justice for the poor. Both are good works. Both are comprised in the idea of goodness, and both are essential to a vibrant Christianity. So let me try and put all of this together for us this morning. Let me try and talk about goodness just a little bit and help us wrap all this up. Just like any of the other fruit of the Spirit that we've talked about so far, goodness is one that finds its root in God's character. It's first and foremost found in God's character, and it's something that must be properly cultivated in our lives. 
our example of goodness is Jesus himself. It's not whatever we want it to be. We don't get to say goodness is this, but it's not that. We don't get to make up the definition of goodness. Goodness is found in the example of Jesus. And we must keep our eyes fixed upon him and allow him to transform every part of us. Goodness is a holistic pursuit. It's not segmented where we have a little bit of goodness here and a little bit of goodness here and a little bit of goodness here. And sometimes they they overlap and sometimes they don't. Goodness is a holistic pursuit. It's something that's enabled by the gospel and it occurs as we apply Jesus into every area of our lives. That's how we live lives that are good and just. We apply Jesus to every area of our life. God's desire is for us to become like Jesus. And that requires us to constantly die to ourselves and to live by the Spirit. To not put our needs at the top, but instead to live for God's kingdom above all else. At the end of the day, goodness is not about us showing God how great we are. It's about reflecting a good God to a world in desperate need of Him. And so for you and I, let's be people who seek the highest good of those around us. Let's be people who walk it out in righteousness and human flourishing and in justice. Let's be people who've been transformed by the gospel and can't help but show the world God's goodness through how we live. God is a good God. He is a God who desires for us to walk according to his way. While we do not have goodness inside of us, while we can't make ourselves into good people, we have Jesus. We have the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ that saves us, that transforms us, and helps us by the empowering of the Spirit day by day to live truly good lives that reflect the goodness of God in every facet of our life. Please stand with me as we pray. You are a good God. Father, your goodness is so good. There's none like you. And when we try to compare our lives to to your life, there's no comparison. You are the standard. You are the only good one. And yet in our deadness our sins are many the wages of our sin is death you step into our story you come and live the life that we can't live the perfect good life you die in our place upon the cross resurrected on the third day, defeating death once and for all. And you say to us, come, come follow me. I will give you life that's truly life. God, help us to realize that. Help us to realize that It's not about us trying to make ourselves better and better and better. It's about surrender. 
It's about dying to ourselves. It's about having the life of God formed in us. Having the life that you desire for us come alive within us. And I pray that you would baptize us in your spirit. That you would cultivate fruit within us you would help us to die to ourselves, to live in Christ more and more. We need you, oh God. We can't do this on our own. We need your grace. Transform us, oh God. In Christ's name.